ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy and your host of Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring a new podcast from FP Studios called Ones and Twos, which takes a look at the global economy with the economist and historian Adam Twos. Each week, Foreign Policy's deputy editor Cameron Abadi and our economics columnist Adam Twos look at two data points that explain the world economy, from our dinner tables to international finance. In just a moment, we're going to play the first episode of the series, which features the data point $28.5 trillion, or the current debt ceiling for the US government. But first, Cameron Abadi, the host of the show, sat down with Playlist to discuss ones and twos and how the series came to be. Well, thank you for doing this. I know it's, it's difficult to get everything set up and takes time out of your day. No, hey, glad to talk. It's always nice to, nice to see you. Well, the podcast sounds fantastic. I, I love the first episode. And we're so lucky to have Adam Poo's writing for us. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's been uh, been a few years now. I recall the first time I reached out to him, I was still living in New York and I just dropped him a line. I, I don't know if it was before his kind of big book on the financial crisis came out or sometime around then. And he just struck me as someone who might be good for FP. And I don't know, we met in a bar somewhere in New York, had a couple of drinks, and it just seemed to be a good match. So I don't know, it's worked out since then. Yeah, and the rest is history. Because, I mean, during, especially last summer, during the kind of initial phases of the pandemic, I just was hoovering up anything that he was writing anywhere and everywhere to try and understand this unprecedented economic moment that we're head that we were heading into. And the first episode that, that you've done, Dancing on the Debt Ceiling, I think does a good job of really unpacking well, kind of what next. And, and he's one of the few economists actually that I find explains things in just really easy to understand ways that you can really digest regardless of your pre-existing understanding of of the economy oh yeah i mean i mean i i think that's why his pieces work and i think it's why the podcast works i mean that was the the impulse behind the podcast was he is a rare kind of public intellectual i think who doesn't just know what he's talking about on the economy but nor is it just that he can give context to what's happening in the economy. Because I think there's a lot of people who can explain the economy as well and kind of analyze it and break it down. But I even think he goes one step further. 
yeah, he's really giving the broadest possible context. Um, you know, he's zooming out and trying to make sense of what's going on in, in the broadest possible way. I mean, I'm not an economics person but by training, but uh, that's why I find him also really valuable to, to read and talk to and, and, uh, and hopefully other people agree too. So who came up with the name ones and twos? I imagine they must be feeling pretty chuffed with themselves. Yeah, no, that was not mine. I won't take credit for that. I think it, I'm pretty sure that was Dan Efron, who who you know, who who runs all the podcasts at FP. I think my initial impulse was something drier. Yeah, I thought I thought it was fantastic, and it sets up the the kind of concept of the podcast as well. So tell me a little bit about that. Each week you look at two numbers. That's right. I mean, we kind of considered a bunch of different formats, but where we settled on is a format where we every week pick two numbers. One of the numbers will be sort of drawn from the headlines that week. And the other number, frankly, could be drawn from anything. It could be from history, could just be a quirky number that could be related to anything from speed limits on trains to uh, historical inflation rates in places like China. We'll take those two numbers, and as I sort of suggested at the outset, what Adam is so talented at is really giving context, is really zooming out and explaining the significance of these numbers. And a single data point can actually contain a whole universe, is what you realize. I think one of the data points we recently recorded was the number of tons of pasta and marinara sauce that are shipped from Italy to Germany every week on dedicated trains. And it was a sort of staggering number of tons of sauce and pasta, and but which is kind of lurid in its own way, kind of just to consider this train rolling over the Alps. And Adam was citing all sort of Napoleonic precedents for crossing the Alps in that way. But the point is, though, that this is a way to think about what the European Union is. This is what Europe is. This is not just exports from Italy to Germany. This is, in a certain way, trade within a single economy. And again, the point is, is that, you know, a single number can be a, a, an entry point to understanding really kind of big sweeping ideas. And the second data point in the episode that we're going to hear today, Dancing on the Debt Ceiling, was mind-blowing that 3.3 billion people around the world were furloughed or had their work life profoundly disrupted uh, during the early phases of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, th this blew my mind too. It actually, that data point comes, or at least I came across it in Adam's new book. Um, it's called Shutdown, and it's about the global uh, economy during the pandemic. And I just started reading it. And when I came across that number, it was one of those moments where I circled it and an exclamation point in the margin. And so I knew I had to ask Adam about it. But uh, it's not just that. I mean, the point is, is that this is a way to think about what we learned during the pandemic as a whole. And so anyway, this 10 minute segment goes from talking about the global labor market, the size of the labor market to philosophical questions about what the economy is at all. And so, you know, that's just a typical journey with Adam in, in, in 10 minutes, sort of covering the world. Can you just give us a, a flavor of what we're going to hear throughout the rest of the series? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, a, it's a conversation. It's a conversation between me and Adam, and it's a conversation about numbers, but that's entertaining and that's insightful, and that will make you think, and hopefully you learn something along the way about the world. The hope here is not to be intimidating. This is not a, a podcast 
that is meant only for experts. I think if you're an expert, you'll have stuff to learn too. But my job is to make sure that folks who are not experts are being brought along for the ride with Adam. And uh, because that's genuinely how I deal with him as well. So it's a conversation and everyone's invited. On that note, maybe we should uh, let our listeners get to the episode. Yeah, go for it and let us know what you think. That was Cameron Abadi. And here now is the episode Ones and Twos, Dancing on the Debt Ceiling, from our very own Foreign Policy. Hi, welcome to the first episode of Ones and Twos. That's Foreign Policy's new economics podcast. Every week we'll be talking about two numbers from around the world that hopefully also explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi. I'm deputy editor of Foreign Policy. I'm sitting in Berlin, Germany, and I'm talking with Adam Tooze, namesake of the podcast. You'll have noticed he's sitting in New York. He's FP's economics columnist. Adam, welcome. Hi, Cameron. Good to be here. For those that may not be familiar with your background, Adam, do you want to give them a quick introduction? Yeah, so my day job is that I'm a professor of history at Columbia and what I spend my time doing is, I guess, trying to make sense of the state of the world and the world's economy uh, against the backdrop of history and economics and economic data. And a lot of that comes together in my book that's just out, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And it's going to be great fun thinking through events, data, the history with you every week on our new podcast. Thanks, Adam. I'm glad you mentioned your book because that's going to be our big picture data point later on in the uh, episode. But first, we're going to do something more from the news, and that's the number 28.5 trillion, as in $28.5 trillion. So that's been in the news recently because it's the size of America's debt ceiling. That's basically the total amount of money the U.S. government is allowed to borrow. And it looks like we're about to run into that ceiling. Treasury Department is now warning that the U.S. could hit the debt limit as soon as next Our month. Our debt is pushed up against the limit of about $28.4 trillion. So only Congress can raise the debt ceiling. And that means Democrats and Republicans need to work together on that. There's just one problem. Republicans are saying they're not going to cooperate at all. And that has gotten people in Washington worried, including Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She's recently warned of catastrophic economic consequences on the horizon. This all might sound familiar. It probably does. You might remember these standoffs going back to the 1990s. If not the 1990s, you probably remember 2011. That's when President Barack Obama was facing off with House Speaker John Boehner over the debt ceiling. The only way they'll vote to prevent America's first ever default is if the rest of us agree to their deep spending cuts only approach. The sad truth is that the president wanted a blank check six months ago and he wants a blank check today. This is just not going to happen. And then in 2013, the standoff over the debt ceiling actually even led to a government shutdown. And here we are today with $28.5 trillion in debt. That sounds like a lot, at least to me. So what did all that borrowing even pay for, Adam? 
So it isn't a question that's as easy to answer as you might think. Um, it, it used to be. So through the 19th century, through World War I, Congress used to design and designate every new debt it gave permission for the federal government to issue and designate a particular purpose for it. So this was debt for building railways, for instance. And that stopped during World War I. So instead, since then, what the Congress does is to essentially authorise a overall cap on what the federal government can borrow, and then they let government get on with it. If you look back over the last 20 years or so, what we can say is that debts have been run up for three basic reasons. They're run up to pay for tax cuts. They're run up to pay for crisis fighting. And they're run up to pay for wars. And those are the three things which have really driven the accumulation of debt in the United States since the late 1990s. Okay, let me zoom out here a little bit, because this just seems like a pretty crazy system. You're telling me that the government agrees to spend on a bunch of stuff that it does not have the money to pay for on hand. And then it has a separate decision that could go either way about whether to pay for the stuff it agreed to buy. I mean, I can't imagine this is how any other government in the world handles its business. But you tell me, Adam, where did this idea of a debt ceiling even come from? So, in fact, you know, there's no doubt that the U.S. budgetary process is broken like many other aspects of American politics, right? So let's put that out there. And it's to do with the complexity of the American budget, the size. It's to do with the division of powers, right? It's the, the division of powers between the legislative branch and the executive branch. The UK government proposes a budget to parliament. It has an inbuilt parliamentary congressional majority. And so there isn't a whole lot of haggling that goes on about that. But broadly speaking, this is far from a crazy way to do things. In fact, this is exactly how economists would recommend that you do this. You decide that you want to spend on investments, on wars, on social expenditure, and then you separate from that the question of how you finance that. And there are three broad ways of doing it, through taxes, which can be appropriate or not, depending on where the economy is at, through debt, which there may be more or less demand for, depending on how much saving there is and how much people want to put in the piggy bank, or in extremists by printing cash, which is what states can do because they issue money. Where this came from, this debt ceiling is kind of interesting because it's double-edged. It limits, on the one hand, how much debt the federal government can issue. But the whole point of doing it in 1917 was, in fact, to say, and up to this point, you can borrow as much as you like and use, you can use it for whatever you like. So Congress is going to step away from regulating the specific purpose of borrowing and say to the Wilson administration in the middle of World War I, if you're doing some complex deal with our allies in the war, if you are doing some complex you know, war mobilization thing, you don't want to have to come to Congress and ask permission for every $100 million you spend. Here's the limit. This is how far you can go. If you need any more than that, come back and ask us. And that's essentially how the debt ceiling is intended to work. It was brought back into effect with, you know, with real drama in World War II on an even larger scale. And what's happened since then is that people have begun to play political football with it. So rather than it being the licensing, enabling general purpose arrangement that it was originally intended to be, it's now become one of the main levers through which Congress checks the executive branch. And I think it's pretty clear right now that's what's going on in the United States at this current moment. The Biden administration has an ambitious legislative agenda. It wants to spend trillions on investment. And the Republicans are pushing back on that. Okay, Adam. So 
what happens if the debt ceiling does not get raised? I mean, we talked about Janet Yellen warning about a catastrophe. So where does the catastrophe come in exactly? I mean, the last time we had a debt ceiling standoff back in 2011, uh, America's credit rating did get lowered a little bit, but I didn't notice the effects. I, I don't know. So is this really a catastrophe? What am, what am I missing? The nightmare scenario is America defaults on some of its outstanding debt. And why that matters is there's a huge pile of it, like we say, about $21 trillion circulating. And if any bit of that defaults, the whole lot becomes unstable. And that really would shake the global financial system to its foundations. And we know that in 2011, when this problem first arose acutely, there were contingency plans made in between the Treasury and the Fed to buy out the slices of debt that were coming due to ensure that no one actually got it defaulted on, or rather, if anyone did, it would be the Fed. You then have entitlements that you've got to pay, social security obligations. You've got the salaries of public servants who actually in 2013 suffered furlough and were paid for only a fraction of the October of 2013. So that's a whole group of people who were hit. And ultimately, you have bondholders who have coupons that entitle them to interest on debt or indeed repayment of the principal. And if that obligation is not met, then you're technically in default. The worst case scenario is that people stop believing in the full faith and credit of the United States government. And that has to be avoided at absolutely all cost. Okay, uh, that actually does all sound pretty bad. Now I don't know why the Republicans would even even threaten this kind of thing. I mean, do they have something to gain out of breaching the debt ceiling, or is this just a kind of bluff? If you go back to 2011, 2013, the last time we played this game, I mean, the Republicans at the time were a pretty head-up bunch, right? So this is the Tea Party period, and then this is the period in which Steve Bannon comes to the fore. And Bannon was interviewed at the time as saying that he was in the business of trying to smash the administrative state in the United States. So at that level, it really was a kind of deliberate act of sabotage. In fact, Jerome Powell, who's now, of course, the Fed chair, acquired the affections of the Democrats because he did a lot of the work in 2011 in trying to explain. He literally ran seminars with Republican congressmen explaining to them how bad it really would be if the United States faltered on this debt. I think right now it's simply a piece of brinksmanship in relation to the Biden's agenda, which is expansive, as we know, and the Democrats are using whatever procedural means they can to force through, or at least thinking about forcing through this giant infrastructure, uh, social welfare program, the $3.5 trillion package, and the Republicans are pushing back with the tools at their disposal. Just straight up, what do you think? I mean, is this really going to happen? Are we going to blow by the debt ceiling and have a real default? I don't, I don't think it's likely because it is truly catastrophic. But with Congress in the kind of mood that it's been in recently, one shouldn't rule anything out. Okay, so to end, I wanted to bring up the question of what it would take to even get rid of the debt ceiling entirely. I mean, I saw some analysts saying this whole system doesn't make sense. Let's just get rid of it. But do you have any idea what normal Americans think about the debt ceiling? I mean, if I had to guess, I don't know. But I would think most Americans think debt is bad. And so a debt ceiling is good. Does history tell us how to persuade them otherwise? If you look at the sampling, if you look at the public opinion polling, Pew has done a series of surveys on this. And, and frankly, attitudes in the US vary over time. There have been moments of extreme agitation about deficits and debt. 
Um, the last wave of that peaked in the early 2010s and slightly more than half of Americans thought that debt was a really big issue. By last year, that had fallen to slightly less than half. So it's an issue that concerns half, if you say, of the, of the public interested in political issues in general. What Pew went on to discover was that though substantial groups worry about it, they also differ radically on what they would do to change it. So that's a big part of as it were, the problem here. You can agree that this is an issue without agreeing on on what to do about it. There are countries uh, like Japan, which live with vastly higher levels of debt than the United States does. So Japan's has a public debt level of over 230% of GDP, which isn't Italy, that's Greece. I mean, that's really astronomical compared to it's more than double where the United States currently stands. They live with it because it's easy to live with this kind of debt if you can find people to hold it. And as we were saying, the, the crucial thing to understand about debt is it's two-sided. And we're on, in a sense, both sides of the equation. One of the most famous sayings in sort of Keynesian economics is we owe it to ourselves. This isn't so I think we owe to Martians or foreigners on the whole, though some American debt is owed to foreign bondholders. The vast majority of it continues to be held by Americans and its claims by one group against the rest of the United States as taxpayers. And I think putting that message across that this is a two-sided transaction, that there are very good reasons why we might want to run up debt, that we might want to transfer obligations to future generations, and that for every debtor, there is also a creditor, and that creditor is as much as often as not us, that would be, as it were, the way to socialise this understanding of debt as a neutral instrument, not something to panic about, but just simply to assess rationally, one way or the other, as a means, amongst others, of financing essential public expenditure. We'll be right back. My name's Kurt Jaimungle. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. All right, so we're moving on to the uh, what we're calling the big picture data point. This segment we recorded a little while ago before I got this new fancy mic. That's why it's going to sound a little different, but the data point we picked is from Adam's new book. The book is called Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And when I was looking through it, there was a stat in there that jumped out at me. It was $3.3 billion. That's the number of workers who were furloughed around the world during the pandemic. That's basically the, all the workers who were prevented from going to work. That's $3.3 billion. I was stunned by that. And I guess I wanted to start by asking for some context. Adam, can you tell us how many workers there are in the world to begin with? Yeah, it's a staggering number. I think it might have been one of the numbers that when I read it, I thought, oh my God, <laughs> this is like nothing we have ever seen before. In fact, it's literally nothing we our species, our humanity has ever seen before, a, a deliberate restriction in the work of, well, we think the global workforce is maybe 3.5 billion people. And of those, it's not quite right to say that everyone was furloughed, but what 3.3 billion people were, were under one or other type of furlough slash 
socially distanced work regulation. In other words, this was not business as usual. But yeah, if you do the math on that, it's, you know, pushing 90% of the global workforce. This is a number from the, from the ILO, the International Labour Organization. Everyone, I mean, everyone. This is the thing about COVID, like, especially in March, April, it affects practically everyone on the planet. So this number is the number of people affected by regulations that says stop doing things how you normally do them, do them this way. As we as we know, I mean, you and I, Cameron, went on working throughout this entire thing. We just didn't go into the office anymore. So we'd be part of this number. What this is telling you is that the ordinary business activity of the vast majority of people in the employed workforce, so these are people who are working for themselves in farms or whatever, was disrupted, was, was, was changed in some quite fundamental way. So this all makes the pandemic seem like a kind of natural experiment, as if we were all just together trying to explore the boundaries of what policy could even do in the economy. But if it was a natural experiment, I guess that raises the question of whether there was any new knowledge that emerged from all of this. I mean, did we learn anything new about how the economy works on a basic level? I mean, take the most basic level of all. Adam, did we learn that countries can afford not to work? Well, they can certainly afford to in terms of questions of paying for things. One of my uh, absolutely favorite quotes in all time in economics is anything that we can actually do, we can afford. This is from Keynes in 1942. Affording, in other words, finding the cash money to pay for things is not our problem. Can you permanently interrupt or for any protracted period of time interrupt the production of food, the education of children, the production of key raw materials and industrial uh, products, the ordinary functioning of the law courts, and indeed the entire infrastructure of urban life, cafes, restaurants, public services, and so on, to which the answer is evidently no, you can't, not for any protracted period of time, which is why we didn't do that. So after GDP, our best guess as to actual output, the fall in output in the spring of 2020, in April, is about 20%, which again, is less, of course, than the drama of the fact that 3.3 billion people were under one or other type of workplace restriction. But again, in the history of the economy, so far as we're able to measure it or even estimate it, there has never been a collapse in output of the scale of 20% in a matter. It's literally a matter of weeks. That's just without precedent. Mm. We have learned that you can tide people over by literally you know, issuing checks and putting, say, the president's name on them. You can do that. Uh, you can, in fact, alleviate poverty by doing that. In, in the United States, the share of people counted amongst the poor fell over the course of the crisis quite remarkably. We've also learned more sophisticated lessons like the Europeans, that you can do various types of short-time working arrangement where you don't actually lay people off and make them unemployed. You keep them in their jobs, pay their salaries with some of these checks that you've printed, um, and then enable them to go back to work normally when you can resume production. We've learned a whole nother bunch of lessons about how you stabilize financial markets when they freak out the sorts of grandiose things the central banks had to do. So we've learned some positive things, some things about our capacities for crisis management, but also some of the limitations. That has me thinking about whether there are even more abstract lessons to be learned from the pandemic. Um, to me, in the before times, it always seemed to me that 
the economy was something that we had to adapt to. That's the way we talked about it. As workers, as individuals, we just had to accept that there was an efficient way the economy worked and we could adjust it on the margins. But ultimately, we just had to adapt to it. And now the pandemic came along and we all just told the economy to stop in its tracks and, and it did stop. And so maybe, I don't know, did we learn that we're actually more fundamentally in control of the economy than, than we thought? Is there this whole idea of efficiency? Is that kind of just a category mistake, maybe? I, I think it probably is a category mistake. I, I would sort of focus on three different respects. I mean, the first is simply that quite a lot of the contraction in the economy, to use a rather neutral term, was in fact driven from below, if you like. People just weighed up whether they wanted to go on shopping in malls or not, decided they didn't want to. People weighed up whether they thought it was worth taking the risk of going to work in a factory and decided they didn't want to. So then employers discovered they didn't have workforces. So then they decided maybe this was time to take a break. And then they discovered that they didn't have consumers either. So there wasn't much point in making things just to build up stocks. So the economy, all the evidence shows, was contracting well before governments issued any orders for people to lock down. The IMF estimates for the advanced economies, probably 60% of the contraction came from that choice to just opt out for a while because the risks seemed too high. Then I think there is, and this is where the reference to political theory is really absolutely pertinent, it turns out there is a sort of overarching claim by the government, by the state, to protect citizens against threats. There is, as it were, in the terms of the great 17th century British political philosopher Thomas Hobbes, right, there is the promise of security that comes from the state. And that extends in the modern age to epidemic disease. And then there's a third element, which in the end was what was driving everything, which has something to do with a, a more concrete set of dependencies, which is that we simply couldn't afford to have the key parts of our infrastructure collapse on us. That was the thing that was absolutely crucial. It was really the hospitals, right? This was all that talk about flattening the curve. The thing about flattening the curve is, is the government isn't promising that people won't die. It's actually saying probably people are bound to die. But the crucial thing is that they don't die all at once in the hospital system. So we spread this out. And what that tells you is beyond, as it were, the big government promise of security and the individual choices people make that is also a collective reliance on this infrastructure. So those are the three imperatives which definitely override just business as usual. People don't want to take part. The government promises security. And crucially, in the end, everything hinges on that infrastructure remaining intact. And that did, in the end, take priority over everything else. So, Adam, now that the era of lockdowns are coming to a close, do you see policymakers falling back on their old economic arguments or are they actually citing the past couple of years as a reason to be creative to start a new era of policy experimentation i think it's just too early to tell i mean we won't be able to judge i think how much policymakers have learned until they've had as it were at least a few more months if not years to forget as we saw in the 2008 crisis, the big shift from expansionary policy to what became known as austerity, a policy of tight spending, high taxes and so on, didn't happen in 2008. And it didn't even happen in 2009. It didn't really begin until 2010. So if you take that as our standard, you wouldn't expect, as it were, it to become clear what policy has and has not learned until then. That'll be the real test. So that means 
you know, in the interim, we still have time to push and to argue and to insist that lessons should be learned. And that's definitely something that I'm passionately involved in on an almost daily basis, because the lesson should be obvious, right? And the first and the most important lesson is we need to focus on this pandemic issue again and again and again. I am involved in discussions with incredibly well-meaning people who are desperately worried about the future, who focus on, say, the climate problem. That's absolutely right. And we should be. But we have to understand that this pandemic we've just been through inflicted savage, I mean, literally unprecedented levels of economic damage. It was widely predicted by virologists and epidemiologists that this would happen. And this is by no means the worst thing that they think that could strike us. I mean, Bill Gates is not wrong when he says that an epidemic like this is the sort of thing that that could potentially kill a billion people at a stroke, right? If this had been avian flu, the one that everyone was worried about in the early 2000s, it could have killed hundreds of millions of people. We would not have been able to cope at all in that case. And we've just had a warning of it. And so that is the obvious and the central lesson to learn. And we need to focus on that first and foremost. If they do break out and we do fail to contain them, we've now also learned a whole bunch of things about the sort of economic and social policy that will work. But I mean, we cannot we cannot kid ourselves to go back to that number. We cannot be in a world in which we routinely interrupt the ordinary livelihoods of 3.3 billion people and furlough kids out of education for months on end. I mean, that is a a level of threat that is just apocalyptic in its implications. And we've had warning now. That is the world that we live in. Okay, that'll do it for the first episode of Ones and Twos. That's Foreign Policies Economics podcast. But you would know that by now. Thanks for listening. I'm Cameron Abadi. And I'm Adam Twos. Ones and Twos is written and produced by me, Cameron Abadi, and Adam Twos. Rob Sachs and Laura Rossbrow-Tellum edit our episodes. If you want to learn more about what we're talking about, check out the links from today's podcast at our website, foreignpolicy.com. You can also find a link to Adam's book, Shut Down. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. And that was the episode Ones and Twos, Dancing on the Debt Ceiling from Foreign Policy. My thanks to Cameron Abadi, Adam Twos and the podcast team for sharing this new series with us. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Rob Sachs, Rosie Julin and Simone Perez. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal 
to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.